I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, begging for God's forgiveness for his participation in Boogie Nights, it's Andy Greenwald! Did you like how I did the crucifix as I I was going back? I do, and what I wanted to say now for the permanent public record (laughs) is when they told me they were taking the plaster cast, I did not know what it was for. My involvement Uh, was, you know, meant to be anonymous. Classic Boogie Nights humor. Yeah. Greenwald, what's up? Because he's got a big one in it's the movie. Thursday. It's the watch re-up. Yeah. Uh, we are so excited to be here with you today. A couple of things we're going to hit today. We're, we are going to talk about Mark Wahlberg's mm. shame mm. and his participation in Boogie Nights. We're going to talk a little bit about this, this Paul Thomas Anderson trailer. Speaking of Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson has a new movie coming out circa Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Phantom Thread. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis and what he is saying will be his last film performance. Yes. Uh, We are also going to preview the second season of Stranger Things and talk a little bit about The Good Place and Walking Dead, so chock full of stuff today. Content. Also, some some listener questions at the end. Uh, Monday, here's the deal. Stranger Things season one, season two, rather, I the think first, we should actually... First three episodes? Let me stop you there. Let's do season one on Let's Monday. Let's run it back. Let's just slow culture. Dare we say binge mode it? <laughs> well, uh, not a bad idea. We'll, go to the, we'll do second season, the first three episodes yes. on Monday. And? And, as you may, may or may not know, hopefully you do, if we've, we've been pumping you full of the Deuce content uh, recently, on Sunday night is the Deuce finale. Season, season one, one finale. We will be joined by Deuce staff writer. Mm-hmm. Megan Abbott, and who's novelist, also yeah. an awesome novelist, and she's going to be calling in, so we'll be talking to her about the finale of The Deuce. Yeah, catch up on The Deuce. The Deuce is great. And Deuce writers, like, come on, don't be last the last one to join us. Yeah. So yeah. Richard Price, Lisa, Simon, holler up. Lisa Lutz, we hear you. Um, I want to do a little bit of in or out. Bottom line, are you in or are you out? In or out of what? Okay, so Andy, let's quickly get into what was a sort of... Um, an unexpected moment of levity this week. Mm. Mark Wahlberg talking to the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to make fun of his religious beliefs. Got far be it for me to, to question a man's faith. Mm. But if Mark Wahlberg is asking for forgiveness for things, yeah. don't ask for forgiveness for Boogie Nights. No, 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 no. That You have to have a reckoning with yourself <laughs> Yeah, if you want to be serious. This I, is like one of the three best things Mark Wahlberg's ever given us. You, t- would you like to know the other two? Yeah. The Gambler. <laughs> wow. And The Departed. Um, that's it. What else would you put in there? Uh, uh, Andy Samberg's impression of him on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) I'm very grateful for that. Um, look, I I just feel like if you want to get right with God, at least like the top three major gods. Yeah. You're going to have to look in the mirror and looking in the mirror means looking at those Transformers four and five posters that are hanging behind you. Here's the quote. I just always hope that God is a movie fan Mm. and also forgiving. Yeah. The, the latter is something that he prides himself on, uh, because I've made some poor choices in my past. Yeah. Boogie Nights is up there at the top of the list. Wow. Is this the same Mark Wahlberg who starred in a movie in which he was a science teacher and discovered that trees were killing people? Yeah. He did that movie, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's, he thinks He also God- plays like a nuclear physicist named Cade Yeager in the Transformers movies. Is God Armand White in this thing? <laughs> and he's just like only likes really bad movies to make a point? I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Um, okay, that was Paul Thomas Anderson's... That wasn't his debut feature. Second movie. It was his second movie. After Sydney, a.k.a. Hard Eight. That's right, which is also very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his, most re- his latest film... By the way, God loved that one. Yeah. He's a big fan. Uh, his latest film is going to be Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. I keep wanting to say The Phantom Fr- Thread. That's because it's The Phantom Menace. Right. Uh, and it starts Daniel Lewis as, I don't know if you know this. Do you know what his character's name is? I, I do, but I have been waiting all week to hear you say it. Reynolds Woodcock. Now, not related to Mr. Woodcock, the Billy Bob Thornton, <laughs> Sean William Scott film. Are we sure it's not in continuity? I totally forgot that. that I think be- this is part of the Woodcock expanded universe. Am I the only one making this connection? Yes. You need me on this wall. Wow, I, I feel like we really miss you on the internet, man. <laughs> Nobody's pointed that out to me yet. Well, that's what I'm here for. Did you ever see Mr. Woodcock? You know, I know, but I feel like I get the gist. I feel like I saw some of it on a plane. Anyway, I've, this is like kind of, we're being silly, but I'm really looking forward to this movie quite a bit. Uh, the trailer dropped, I think, on Monday. Yeah. Um, and it just looks... Gorgeous. It looks like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Rhythmically, in terms of 
and and the emotions and the tones it's sort of playing with it reminds me more of the master mm-hmm. uh, than another any other PTA film, um, and it even seems to have that overall theme of uh, master and pupil, of mm-hmm. teacher and student, mm-hmm. of and maybe those rules of are artist and muse. Reverse? Yeah, and I think that podcast co-host and podcast co-host, <laughs> dare I say, <laughs> um, and it's about a nineteen. I think 50s and 60s, I think mm. it spans some time, uh, fashion designer living in England, and he meets a woman who becomes his muse, but he comes, obviously, there's a codependency involved. It's very vague. It's, yeah. PTA movies yeah. are not deep on plot. You don't need to know what the uh, what, what Emperor Snoke is up to when you're getting into the Phantom Thread, but... Look, a couple things about this trail. Obviously, I'm going to see this movie. Yeah. If you care about movies, and if you're like me, if you're like God, you're going to see this movie right. because you're a big cinephile. Um this trailer's too long. Because what? it's too long. <laughs> what? Here's the thing. Why? Because either they are not telling us something about the movie. Uh-huh. Like Snoke did it. Uh-huh. Or there's some big secret or there's some other third act. You know, there's something else going underneath the surface, underneath the uh, the hems, if you will. Sure. In the canvas. Or, yeah, or this is a very, you know, taut character drama that doesn't need three minutes of escalating tension to sell us on it because we're going to see that movie anyway. Yeah, so I, that's I, an interesting question. Is if if I just say the words Paul Thomas Anderson it's a new film, movie. yes, right. But that's great. I think that the reason why you first of all Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, whether he, I think he does cut them himself, is very good at trailers. Yeah, and it's, yeah. often puts stuff in his trailers that doesn't show up in the film itself, oh. and does a really good job. Just at, like uh, Rogue One. Yes. Did he cut that trailer? <laughs> yeah, Bob Iger cut that one because that trailer, by the way, is still the best Star Wars movie. Yes. That's true, and there's a lot in that trailer. A fair amount in that trailer never showed up yeah. in Rogue One, um, but he does he does work on his own trailers. Uh, the, there's footage in there that you don't see. You know, there's footage in the master that's not in the master, mm-hmm. and I think that it kind of gives him a sense of uh, not. I don't want to say relevance because I think his films will always be relevant. But is a filmmaker always in danger of falling into that? I put out a movie every 26 months. It's kind of about the same stuff. Hope you come see it. Well, to that point, what's interesting to me about this trailer is that it appears to be set in the UK. It is, yes. Um, I was a big fan of a, a theory, or at least a, like a working um, hypothesis, that that PTA's movies in general were about America. Yeah. And of, I'm not saying this can't be about America. Well, I don't know. and specifically California. And about different, yeah, right, the different eras of California, boom and bust, and specifically about the psychology of this one place. And I'm not saying he shouldn't go off and make another movie, but that was interesting to me. So that suggests a departure, in one, certainly in, 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 in one large respect. Right. The second thing that I'm thrilled about in this trailer that, by the way, I'm right, it was too long. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. How that's my take. If you watch the trailer, that's your fault. Do you want me back on the internet making <laughs> takes like that? Because I will burn this whole web down. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is, I mean, I guess maybe was, since this may be his last film, not just one of our greatest actors, mm. but if he wanted to be, could be one of our greatest movie stars. I thought you were going to say one of our greatest uh, designers. One clothing. of our greatest Mark Wahlberg impressionists. Yeah. He is so dashing and charming yeah. and effortlessly like Cary Grant or Fred Astaire and Funny Face in this trailer. Um, obviously with Menace and other things lurking beneath it, but it's effortless for him to do this. And usually to be, when he's in a movie, he likes to completely disguise Immerse. himself. Yeah. My Left Foot, um, Gangs of New York, um, Lincoln, Transformers 4. Most people don't know he was Bumblebee yeah. in that movie, but he lived life as a small yellow car for a number of years. <laughs> um, did you like my commitment to that? He actually... No, I was going to make a joke about the boxer, but never mind. No. <laughs> no. Look, it's just... It's Nobody n- cares about my Marvin Hagler jokes. It's <laughs> nice to see It's nice to see that aspect of his talent being yeah. showcased, even if it's just for the trailer. And it's, you know, it, it turns out the movie is, in fact, a sequel to the um, gym teacher romp. So Mr. to Woodcock. review, we are yeah. in on Boogie Nights. Couldn't be more in on Boogie Nights, by Out the way. Out on Mark Wahlberg apologizing yeah. to God for it. Happy 20th anniversary, Boogie Nights, right? In on Phantom Thread, yeah. In on Phantom Thread out on the Phantom Thread trailer being longer than... What's the over-under that you're willing to accept for a I want a hot 90. 90 seconds? Yeah, man. But this is like 120 seconds. This is like three, almost three American minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a busy guy. Yeah. I don't have time for that. Uh, the metric system... Uh, no, uh, and are, so... Are, are we doing Boogie Nights for rewatchables? Is someone doing it? I don't know that that's been discussed. Because... I don't know of a more rewatchable movie, and maybe that it's 20 years on, maybe we need I to revisit I disagree. Can I tell you something really quickly? Can we go off, can we go off menu a little bit, Zach? Uh, 
here's a more rewatchable movie. When Zach is waving his arms like that and running a slashing gesture across <laughs> his neck, does that mean go ahead? A more rewatchable movie is Goodfellas. And I feel like okay. now Goodfellas is underrated. Have I told you about this recently? No. Um, Goodfellas, yeah. I, I Neyman, Adam Neyman wrote a piece about the snowman, mm-hmm. which was edited by Thelma Schoonmacher, yeah. longtime sure. Scorsese editor. Mr. Apparently, Police. her work on Snowman yeah. is a uh, performance piece. Yeah, it's like, like, it's like, what if I didn't edit it? Right. But he reminded me, Thelma Schoonmacher, responsible for, in his words, and I agree with him, the greatest montage in the history of film. 100%. Layla. Yeah. Second half of Layla, pianos, mm-hmm. guys falling out of the dump truck. Le- Goodfellas might be the underrated. Guy, the guy looks like Eugene Levy hanging in the meat locker? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Frankie Carbone. Look. Goodfellas, I, I, I see where you're going in here. And by the way, side note, I would pay money for the Schoonmaker cut of the Phantom Thread trailer. <laughs> I feel like that's what the streets are asking for. Um, I think, I think I, it's Schoonmaker. I'm sorry, Thelma. I, 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 big watch fan. <laughs> big, big, big watch fan. I, I think, uh, I actually think you're right. I, I can. There Thelma few, Schoonmaker only listens to Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. It's, is, that, is that her life? It's true. Is she about that? She's a degenerate gambler. It's kind of interesting talking about these two movies, and maybe we can put this off into another discussion later uh, down the line, but Boogie Nights obviously hugely indebted to Goodfellas. Sure. There's the Copacabana scene in one, and then there's the walk, the one through the, the restaurant mm-hmm. at the beginning of Boogie Nights. You couldn't have one without the other, and they hit a lot of the same emotional beats. Um, only one of them has Alfred Molina in essentially an adult diaper <laughs> yes. while a small Chinese boy puts, sets off firecrackers yes. in the background. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but they are two perfect films. Yeah, so I don't know, Boogie Nights, all those films, we got to put them in the rewatchables queue. Okay, uh, last in or out, I just wanted to ask you this really quickly. Yeah. Are you going to read the Jan Wenner biography? Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, I'll tell you what I am going to do. I am going to uh, go to bed and then wake up with a little insomnia and just impulse purchase it on Amazon on my really? phone. Has that been happening a lot with you? The impulse purchasing biographies? Yes. Or the not sleeping? Both. Well, yeah. Honestly, yeah. Um, so I did start it. And uh, th- I think this is going to be really interesting. It is longer than the Phantom Thread trailer. It is 500 pages. <laughs> but this has been, I think this whole thing has been fascinating. So for people who don't know, just quick background on this, Jan Wenner. The there was this thing called magazines. <laughs> it used to be that you would go to a store and yeah. buy bound together paper for news. And Jan Wenner, creator of Rolling Stone, one of the most influential magazines, one of the most influential tastemakers and publishers, basically decided, as magnanimous rich guys do, that it was time for his story to be told and bestowed the honor upon this New York reporter named Joe Hagan. And encouraged everyone to call him and collaborate with him. And it was not, it's not authorized, but it was permitted, right? Yeah, it was sure. encouraged. And then, and Hagen apparently reported the, the living shit out of it and talked to everyone. And everyone talked the living shit about Jan Wenner, mm-hmm. who then finally getting a copy of it before, right before publication has disowned it. So this already makes for great copy. Um, I think this is, I, I'm more interested in this than I thought I would be just because of the the era that it's talking about and now looking back as whatever rock and roll whatever the role of rock and roll in the culture is today seems to be certainly on the wane to think about how it was intentionally um created and intentionally promoted and the way it was seen not because okay I'll put it this way growing up you probably like we both of us started reading Rolling Stone maybe in the late 80s looking at issues and getting sure. more into it and later and making the cover of Rolling Stone was like making the cover of Sports Illustrated it was essentially the most important place you could be in music yeah, or sports and, yeah. and I remember buying an issue that was like the 100 essential albums of the 80s they put it out mm-hmm. in London Calling by The Clash was number Rolling, one Rolling Stone album guide very fundamental and in, in, in mapping out my music listening yeah, and pre-internet yeah. sort of making up making your taste but one thing for us who inherited this you know post baby boomer, gener- considerably post-baby sure. boomer generation, thank you very much, um, it all felt like Mount Rushmore. Like, all these people, the Mick Jaggers, Paul McCartney's, all the people who are quoted in this book, and even the idea that Wenner and Rolling Stone were the tastemakers, mm-hmm. this all felt pre-existing. You know, it, it was like, this was the firmament that existed before we were born and was always this way. Now to look back and realize, oh, well, he was calculating, he was um, savvy, he was... You know, like whatever. being associated with fame, yeah. Being associated with fame, yeah. promoting people at the expense of others, promoting a narrative that put rock and roll in the center of the culture, but also put Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone in the center of the culture, I find very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we don't really, I, I wonder even when Joe Hagan started this piece, if he could have envisioned a time where magazine editors in chief as avatars for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, multi-million dollar brands and lifestyles and, and worldviews, like, in, in, you know, Bill had Graydon Carter on yeah, this past week. Yeah, it was a great week, interview. Or, and, uh, 
you know, just these guys, these people are kind of last of a dying breed to some extent. Um, and the idea that a magazine editor in chief was just literally the gatekeeper to what so many people got their sort of perspective from. They they got their they got their taste from these magazines. And these magazines were a pyramid. And somebody sat at the top and was like, that's not us. Mm-hmm. This is. Yeah. Or and, in Young Winner's case, that's not us weekly. This is us weekly. Because he's <laughs> responsible for that too. Very well played. To, but to listen to Graydon on Bill's podcast, which I think people should do, it almost felt like a time capsule itself to listen to this guy in his 60s now, who for us, again, for us, we're like, well, of course, there's a famous rich guy who can just open restaurants and run Vanity Fair, like a personal fiefdom. And, you know, he... he not even a bad way, just his taste yeah. determined this. Yeah. That feels incredibly outdated. Almost when he and the others, editors of his generation, have sort of pulled up the stakes, all of a sudden we're like, oh, this was what was keeping this afloat? Sure. But as also revealed in that interview, Graydon Carter had the idea to have a Oscars after party, which again, incredibly exclusive. We didn't get to go to that. No. Most people don't get to go to it. But what he, by creating that and by perpetuating it, helped redefine or define celebrity who was famous, who was a star for 20 years. Right. So the effects of it were felt in the culture. Sure, they were they're real. Yeah. But, um, but, but to hear him talk to Bill and talk about like trying to cover, whether it's celebrity or news, in, this, in the age of um, the internet or in the age of Trump, it's just like, how, how did any of this exist? I just can't believe a biography of Jan Wenner to go back yeah, to that. So in some ways- a, a, it feels like a historical artifact as opposed to, considering he just basically, he put the magazine up for sale this year. That's right. So uh, we'll be... Checking that out. We're in on the biography. Quickie on Winter side note, what is your favorite Mick Jagger solo album? I'm actually more into the expensive winos, the Keith Richards oh, side project. Yeah, a thousand percent. Main <laughs> Offender is no joke. Yeah. One of my favorite records from that era. But so you don't, do you, do you stand by the five star review of Goddess in the Doorway? <laughs> I can't say that I'm too familiar with that one. Uh, I, I don't remember them all right now, but one of the most impressive things that, that my high school buddy, our, our buddy Matt ever did was he, he in high school, he titled a run of AP English papers after Mick Jagger solo albums. How did Matt do in AP English? It, it, they all slipped right by. Yeah. Like the one about Maya Angelou and I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings was called She's the Boss. <laughs> this is This is true. <laughs> Um, I, I don't. I, oh my god! And, and, and our teacher did not notice any of this. Maybe because well, he probably was like, he just named a paper about Maya Angelou after a sitcom. And well, oh no, that was who's the boss? Oh, I thought it was she's the boss. To oh, be clear, who's the boss is like the whole eternal yeah. question: is it is it Tony or is it Angela no, or is it Mona? You're giving your bias away. It was Angela. It was Judith Light. She's right. clearly the boss. Right. But it, it left it an open question because in that era, America wasn't sure, you know, whether we could accept sure. a single mom as the boss. And frankly, probably still can. Well, speaking of America in a different yeah. time, uh-huh. let's talk about Stranger Things. Great, great, first, great segue. Let's just hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by LinkedIn. Have you tried to hire someone lately? It's hard. I know for us at The Ringer, we're always looking for great talent, but you got to sort through all these resumes, etc. You post jobs to boards. You hope you'll find the right person for your job. But think about it. How often do you check job boards? For most people, it's a pretty occasional thing, but there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is there. It's LinkedIn. You already know LinkedIn as the world's largest professional network. Well, it's also a better way to find great talent. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted LinkedIn jobs over the past year. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find a role and apply. Go to linkedin.com slash the watch and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash the watch for $50 in credit towards your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode of the watch is also brought to you by the homies at Sonos who've changed my life. God, I love this thing. It's basically a stereo system for the 21st century. You you can play your streaming music services throughout your house. In each room, you can have different music. In all the rooms, you can have the same music. You can change the volume. You can change the songs. It's incredible. Sonus lets you have pulse-pounding sound in any room or every room all at once. That is right. 
You can play a different song in the living room, bedroom, or even bathroom, or the same track in every room, which is the perfect party soundtrack. You can have people in the back of the house hearing the same song so that when you're dominating them and making them listen to your somber acoustic music to kill the party. Dominate them. Yes. You can add your existing music services or discover something new, whether curated or on demand, free or subscription based. Sonos has you covered with access to a growing list of music services. Plus, Sonos' simple app helps you control everything from songs to volume to rooms all in one place. I can't tell you how easy this thing is to install. I cannot possibly stress how fun it is to use. And now Sonos is offering the listeners of the watch 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code WATCH10. That's WATCH10 capital WATCH at Sonos.com to receive this offer welcome back to the watch the re-up the casual thursday conversation uh andy let's talk about stranger things man it's thursday tonight at 9 p.m our time 12 midnight friday east coast time do we get it on east coast time we do i think wow i think so if I remember correctly, that's when I stopped binging the Zark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I just, I'm going to need a second for that. But I wish, why did I get an after show called Sailing the Ozarks? Why didn't you? Yeah. Just, do you want to make, do you want you really want to go through it? <laughs> <laughs> I've got some thoughts. Bateman looked like a king last night at the Dodgers game. Was he there? Yeah. Uh, Stranger Things. Big show. Big show, big future. Um, why did they have to be so strange? And what if they were not things? When I was young, the things were normal. Well, that's, that's a good segue. Because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot for se- the second season of Stranger Things, I am trying to resist reading anything too extensive about the season. Which, by the way, I was too, which is why I didn't read anything you wrote about it until all of a sudden, big time Chris was like, Well, because I didn't really thing? write about the show. I know, and I really... You know, uh, I, let me say, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I was... Part of the pleasure of Stranger Things, what was, yeah. I guess... Year and a, year a half ago, ago now, last year summer, ago, year, year ago, was the word of mouth phenomenon mm-hmm. that it was that happens so rarely in pop culture these days. Because usually these things feel yeah. prepackaged as like you better do it; mm-hmm. it's a sensation already. And Stranger Things was something that had a very organic kind of like, damn, did you check out Stranger Things? This is like a really good, dude. Yeah. And then Barb happened, and then more and more people watched it, and then I feel like people Don't rewatched use it. Don't passive voice like you didn't take part in making Barb happen. I did make Barb. I helped yeah. I helped Barb along. Yeah. I think that there are other people who are sent more centrally uh-huh. responsible for, for her journey. Yeah, for her journey. Uh, the least of, not, not the least of which is Shannon Purser herself, the sure. actress behind Barb. Um, but... So this season comes with a different set of circumstances because I think there's been so much anticipation. There's been so much coverage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, The reviews came out this week. I did not re- read any of them. Um, yeah. I've re- I read a little bit of stuff from the Duffer Brothers about what to expect this season. But mm-hmm. what I wrote about was a Stranger Things syllabus, which we sometimes do from time to time, where it's like, hey, Twin Peaks is coming back here. Read these five things about David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Watch these three, four things. Listen to these pieces of music. I tried to put myself in a little bit of a different headspace where I was like, what was it like for kids in 1984, which you and I were. We sure were. Um, a little young to be really out there on these streets. But, you know, we... It was a different time, man. We could ride our huffies. We did, and we did. But I, I sort of tried to put myself in the headspace of, like, what was it like for a teenager in 1984? What, was, what were the movies showing you? What were mm-hmm. you hearing on the radio? Mm-hmm. What were the events happening around you? And what would that do to you if you were a character on this show? You know, and it's a little bit of like a strained premise, but the premise basically being like the thing, first of all, holy shit, 1984. Nice Great. job. <laughs> nice job. Pretty, pretty, pretty rich year. You go, you just like look up the list and it's like, yeah, Terminator, good movie. Beverly Hills Cop, pretty good movie. Yeah. And then it's like Karate Kid, Karate Kid 16 right? Candles, yeah. Gremlins, Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And then the music is just one of the all time great years mm-hmm. that the Holy Trinity of Purple Rain, like a virgin born in the USA mm-hmm. and kind of living in the wake of the thriller, thriller, which came still. out the year before. and to say nothing of all the incredible punk rock, burgeoning rap music scene, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, what I found was that you, you sort of got a real interesting collision. And I said this, so I'm not, I'm not trying to jack myself here, but I said the, this collision between like wonder and horror, 
mm-hmm. which is essentially the recipe for any good Spielberg movie from that period anyway. Yeah. But you got people who were like, okay, kids are being put in the hero spot. Yep. In a lot of movies, you see things where teenagers are being asked to save their town, save the country, save the world, save the universe. Red Dawn. Yeah, Last Starfighter. Yeah. And if you were a kid in 1984, involved in something even as fantastical as what's happening in the town of Hawkins with these Stranger Things kids, you'd kind of be like, this scans. Mm-hmm. This is the vibe right now. Mm-hmm. I am important. People are finally marketing things to me specifically as a yeah. consumer. MTV is but, on all the time. But also the world is feels large. Mm-hmm. The world feels scary mm-hmm. because there is, I don't know if you know this, but back then there was tension with Russia. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, 84 Olympics, Russia boycotts. We had boycotted 80. There's Star Wars, like the it, missile defense system happening. And, and the world doesn't just feel large and scary, but it also feels full of mystery because you don't – you information is heavily filtered yes. and slow moving to yeah. get to you. So this was a time of – and we could talk about this in terms of world events or we could talk about it in terms of um, urban legends. But things trickle down to you on the schoolyard or from your parents or from overhearing things and it – you were given pieces, but not the whole puzzle. Yeah. And one of the things, I think you're about to make the pivot, so I, if you don't mind me making it too, but one of the things that, that Stranger Things, the show, gets so right compared to a lot of the um, more overblown sci-fi franchisee stuff that we, that we get today is the ki- these kids aren't necessarily on a wavelength that they are saving the world. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to save their friend. Yes. It is a, it's a question of scale. That makes more sense for the era, but I think also makes more sense for enjoyable storytelling. And it's their interaction with the pop culture around them that I think prepares them psychologically for what's happening. I mean, mm-hmm. like, seeing a demigorgon is pretty traumatic. And I obviously, to my knowledge, no one's ever actually interacted with one. But uh, there is the element to which it's it's like... You know, if you have a situation where the, you're at once watching space shuttles take off, but you also have, like missile defense systems mm-hmm. and, and nuclear threats. And I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I thought that that was a very interesting way to uh, kind of approach this season. By all accounts, it's a much larger cast or a significantly larger cast this season. Sean Astin has joined the cast. There's a couple of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bre- Brett Gelman is apparently playing like a conspiracy theorist on this year. That works. And the touchstones that the Duffer brothers have suggested that they were sort of drawing from this season were Empire... Temple of Doom. Not the Fox show Empire. No, Empire, Empire Strikes, Strikes Back. Back. Uh, Temple of Doom. Some of the darker stuff that um, does that sort of really fine line of putting kids in extreme danger yeah. uh, and having real adult consequences. So it'll be interesting to see what they do here because they've got themselves a very hot property that they want to keep going for four or five years. You know, but they want to introduce stakes to this world. I, I think um, from what I've heard again we haven't seen it i thought maybe by the way that i secretly got like wink wink maybe i had access to them and i i went in my little my little netflix screener yeah i just, I just had like six episodes of the lady dynamite <laughs> no disrespect <laughs> why did you wink wink to marie danford i just thought maybe because everyone else was like oh i got the screener so oh, i was right. like maybe maybe papa netflix forgot that i'm not really on the beat anymore <laughs> papa netflix nah, did not get it um but what i've gathered is that they actively approached the season as a sequel now, literally, that it is you know enough talk of the like you know, the ten hour movie, blah blah blah. But trying to treat this season cumulatively as a sequel to what came before, mm-hmm. and as you're saying, like Empire, like these other movies where things got a little bit darker. I think that probably makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the idea of th- this this is the rare show that I I'm okay with not working necessarily episodically. Sure. Um, but my main thing going into the season that I've tried to keep in in my mind is that the first season was incredibly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. We have had, it truly is a whirlwind. You know, um, I, it's hard to believe that Millie Bobby Brown just turned 30. <laughs> like, I feel like we just met her yesterday. Yeah. Um, but this all happened so quickly and so out of the blue, and people liked it so intensely and so suddenly that the flip to what was wrong with it came very very quickly. Now there are a lot of there were a lot of flaws in the show. Can you give me a what what's the major thing that people say is wrong with it? Um, well, but this is interesting. I think you know we've talked about this before, but that a lot of people we know who who work in the industry or make things really give it the side eye. Yeah. My take on that is they feel it, it, it's a weird level of ownership because a lot of people 
who we know in the industry are the same age as us and were the same age in 1984 and were the same age roughly as the Duffer brothers and are like, no, no, that's my childhood. How did you get to this? Do you want to know what my response How did you to, get that, to that, first? that criticism is? Yeah. If you were the inventor of Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. You know, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. The thing about Stranger Things that why it succeeded, it's not rocket science. It was very pleasurable. Yes. The kids were good. Yeah. It was, it had the correct balance. They of, had, do you, you know how hard it is to cast a kid? Yeah. I have no idea. I've never casted a kid to do anything. Fair. Let's just say it's hard. Yeah. Imagine casting six of them that are really good. I, I kind of want you to break down how hard it is. <laughs> I think it's in, incredibly hard. Yeah. I think, and the idea that they get everybody from the tertiary kids to mm-hmm. the teens to the like, you know, like the Ferris Bueller looking homie who's in all the Domino's commercials to Barb to Nancy to Barb, and then they have this foresight to make to get Winona in there mm-hmm. and have her do the nervy mom thing and David Harbour, who's like the classic like gruff cop mm-hmm. character. The casting across the board in the show has been uniformly excellent, and I think it does a long goes a long way to elevating what is essentially nothing is like starkly original in this stuff. Yeah. And if anything, I think if I could raise one concern trolling thing about about this season, it's that it was a delightful experience to watch mm-hmm. it. I don't know that the underlying mythology of the upside down mm-hmm. is like interesting no i and if that's I what that. it winds up being like we need to take a really hard look at the upside down it's like yeah you don't really need to do it it's like a friggin' goo patch in a tree like don't worry about it there's a monster it's, it comes out it goes back in let's focus on the hard things in life like casting children in dramatic <laughs> roles let's do a multi-part series about that yeah bill moyers I think human giant did do that casting children <laughs> yeah an investigative report um no, we we said frequently at the end of the first season, which we both liked. Loved, I loved it. Well, the, I, I, I was saying. I'm the not bar trying low. to trump you. I'm trying to say uh, we, we, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot I was, without reservation. But despite loving it, we both I think agreed that we would have been fine if this became an anthology series. If we didn't go back to this town, yeah, right. That maybe we pick up with you could keep Eleven, you could keep um, what's his name Hopper, but like maybe they're in a different town now. Like yeah. the risks you run of going back to the same well are great. But if you're treating it like an event, like a, like a return to it, and really celebrating the spirit of those older movies and not celebrating the spirit of watered-down sequels, which was very much in keeping with the 80s, sure. you might be in for something. There's an element of that era that I think is important to consider when watching this. See, when watching this, in all the movies we mentioned, it's there too, which is um, just outright triumphalism and and a kind of weirdly innocent optimism yeah, runs through them. Absolutely. Um, that's not very much in favor because pessimism has a very good reason to be winning right now. But if you think about those movies, you think about Top Gun, you know, which is which is a grown-up movie, but they're um, nominally a grown-up movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a Merchant Ivory production. It, yeah. Basically. But, you know, there was a there was a a, a, a belief in the American kid, mm-hmm. whether it was Tom Cruise or whether it was um, what's his name who put water on the Mogwai, that they could triumph. The, the Gremlin homie, Grem, my man from Gremlin, yeah. Zach something. What was that dude's name? Yeah, I can't remember. That they would that they would win and that they were righteous and good and somehow this would work out for them. Sure. I, I, I I'm not mad at these kids winning in Stranger Things. Is what I'm saying. You know, I think that's okay. Yeah, it's a different it's a different way of of considering what we value. You in. talked a lot about in the uh, for the Deuce how much you just like hanging out in the, the mm-hmm. places there and hanging out with these people. That's the same way I feel about Stranger Things. I'm 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 down if two of these episodes just feel like a John Hughes movie. I don't need I don't need this to be like. No. When we get out of it, I'm like, I know the rules of the upside down. Oh God! And I know no. all I know. about like the evil in the other dimension and what they need to def- defeat it. Oh, Stephen King novels are not great because they actually have the architecture of the supernatural stuff that's happening that is like wow you no. just can't argue with that no it's great because of the setting the feeling the atmosphere yeah. the, and the characters and that's why Westworld's bad <laughs> because they have the architecture for you. all of that they could give us a PowerPoint dissertation on exactly what everything means and what they're thinking at that moment and what the programming is doing and I couldn't care less here's a show that maybe could use an upside down mm. Walking Dead wow you're going there well I watched it you didn't I just no. wanted to give you a report from Walking Dead Island so Zach let's let's cue my violins we're using this for this now we're gonna use the taboo music wow music from taboo island and uh so I don't know if you you know this but there's a tiger on Walking Dead now I'm listening and I I saw how that just picture your interest yeah. by saying that it needs more tigers I think that this show 
I, it's right there. That's the thing that kind of frustrates me about this is that there's a lot of stuff about this show that I really, really, really want to be into. Quick question. Yeah. Is it a zombie tiger? No. It ah, belongs yeah. to a member of one of the various rebel faction. Because you, know, like, you know I love Life of Pi. Like, that movie is my jam. <laughs> You're super nangly. Because yeah. that's a tiger yeah. also. <laughs> yes. So I'm like, maybe the, transitively I will like this. I think that what I just... I kind of wrote, the, I wrote a piece earlier in the year when the trailer for Walking yeah, Dead season came out at one of the Comic Cons, and I yeah. was like, "This is it, man! Like, go full exploitation, go full grindhouse, yeah. shootouts." And I saw some of the fan, longtime fans of the show on our Slack talking about like, so the most valuable things like are supposed to be gasoline and bullets, and that's the thing that they seem to have unlimited supply yes, of. Yes, they do. Yeah, and now it's kind of turned into this nonsense shoot 'em up, and kind of overnight. It seems like everybody speaks like a character from Leviticus. <laughs> like no one actually just talks in a normal way. They all gather and give really bad any given Sunday speeches yeah. and then fight for 40 minutes. Uh-huh. And I, I, I think that this, for, for, at least for this first episode, and the ratings are kind of steadily slipping a little bit. Of course. Uh, it just still is caught between taking itself so seriously and not taking itself nearly seriously enough. Uh-huh. And that ultimately is my problem with it. You can knock it for its nihilism. You can knock it for its violence. But in the end, I think that when a show goes on this long, it there's got to be a tonal shift to like juice it up a little bit. Or it has to be about something. I think we, I think you, I think you got it right. I mean, and this is, I, I got, I didn't watch it because I, I got tired of saying the same things about it and people yeah. got tired of reading me say the same things about it. Um, but I was kind of like, oh, this would be cool if this was good now. But we've all been suckered before. There have been, there have been good episodes of the show and it has reversed course to a minor degree. But look, here's the thing. People, people don't read Playboy for the articles. This is my, this is my Walking Dead take. But I don't, they don't think really. that. And, and people watch the show. Walking Dead is not short of centerfolds. In terms of if your centerfold no. is a guy eating another guy's brains. Which, by the way, whatever yeah. floats your boat. But, which I think was the plot point in Fear <laughs> Walking Dead last season. Um, fine, but they but the show seems incapable of admitting just how pulpy and yes. nasty yes. it is. Yes. And yes. so it needs to have some sort of high-mindedness. Let me tell you something. There is nothing high-minded about this show. There is, from day one, what made the comic book compelling to people was that there was no hope. Yeah. You could maybe pull that off in a long-running serialized comic book, as Robert Kirkman apparently has done. Television, I think, operates under different rules. And if there is no hope, it's just different permutations of horror. It's going to be dwindling results. Well, you think about when you're looking at a two-dimensional, like a panel comic, a, a panel of comics, and you're mm-hmm. you're doing half the work. Yeah. No matter that's how right. detailed the art is, and no matter how epic the 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 screen is within that panel, mm-hmm. within those two pages you've got there. You're still inferring everything you know about those characters, everything you know about this world, and then you're imagining what it feels like in space or like fighting Wolverine mm-hmm. or whatever it is. When you see something on a screen, the director, the people who are making what you're seeing are responsible for every emotional reaction mm-hmm. you are having. And a good filmmaker is in control of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that. I know what they are trying to do with The Walking Dead. So it is different this season. Are they trying to do something different? No, I think it's getting a little bit more... I, I think that it's gotten much more into the action vein rather than like kind of a sparse survival tale. Yeah. But I think that they're not going full Walter Hill enough, you is, know? Is, is, is your man Denny from Grey's Anatomy still walking <laughs> he, around like latter-day still... Cody Bellinger? <laughs> yeah. Is that still his vibe? What? She's like, batter up. Latter right? day Cody Bellinger. I mean, when Cody Bellinger lets himself go I a little bit. I can't top that, man. All right, let's talk about a show we actually like, which is, I want you to just, if people aren't watching The Good Place, tell them in two minutes why they should. I, I, I actually have, I have a, a two-pronged take on the show. The Good Place is the um, most recent sitcom by Mike Schur, creator, co-creator of Parks and Recreation. Um Terrific tweeter at Ken Tremendous. Collaborate, collaborator with uh, our buddy Shay Serrano. Yeah, Shay Serrano's pulling Mike up a little bit to yeah. his level and bringing him a new level of turns internet out fame. The other things in basketball are Mike Sure. Yeah, yeah, as it turns out, not a bad thing. Um, the show premiered last year, was terrific. It's back this year. It's on now. It is a, it's an experiment in very, very highly serialized storytelling in the half-hour form. It is incredibly funny and warm, but it is about the afterlife. And, it, and ethics. And, eth- and basically, it's about how to be a decent human being. Well, let me do my John Polito Miller's Crossing thing. Ethics. Oh, that was good. You want to do it again? Or is it once enough? <laughs> That's good. Okay. Um, 
in it is highly serialized. There are cliffhanger endings. There's twist surprises, as there were last season. The season has taken the sort of wild twist that ended the first season and continued to push. You know, I mean, that was a, a hallmark of Parks and Recreation too. That despite sitcoms always succeeding due to our familiarity and comfort with the characters. Mike Schur seems to be able to give us people that we feel warmly about, we love to be around, but continually change the circumstance in a way that is gratifying in this binge era of serialized television. I, I think the show is a marvel. I think Kristen Bell and Ted Danson are two of the best TV actors working. I think the supporting cast is doing that thing that supporting casts do on good shows in second seasons where they, okay, we get it now, and now we can run. Um, it, it's It's truly a pleasure to watch the show, and yet my feeling after watching these last few episodes was a little bit like, is this, am I in a vacuum watching this? I actually felt a little melancholy about it because I don't know. I mean, maybe people are watching it probably in the, you know, maybe a million people a week are watching it all told, but hopefully people listening to our podcast are watching it. Mm-hmm. But it was, I was feeling it's a million and six now. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, well, you know, actually, um, Thelma Schoonmacher now knows about it. She hasn't heard <laughs> us talk about Schoonmaker it. Thelma Schoonmacher, too. Yeah. <laughs> Macher? Macher? Which is it? Schoonmaker? It's Schoonmacher, I think. She's, she's, she's Thelma to us. She edited Goodfellas. She's good. Um, th- that there, there is an element of watching these shows that feels better when we're doing it together, right? And it just feels kind of they're doing all this great work and it will exist, but it feels a little bit lonely. And I'm curious if you have that same experience. And if that feeling I'm having is partly because he's doing this incredible work in a half-hour format that is generally digested or consumed in a more disposable manner. I mean, it's no surprise that, um, that Mike talked to Damon Lindelof in planning the show and talking about it. There are elements of loss in the show. There are elements about being a human that overlap with The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Leftovers certainly was not a highly rated show. But there, there's something... You, you tell me, is this my biases about the 30-minute format coming to play? I think it's the television it the way we watch TV lover's now? lament now. Okay. I think it is the I w- concern I, I love- that you're not part of a community anymore. Right. And that if you want to be part of a community, you can. But it's, it's, it feels like those communities are in these little little boxes and that there's not a lot of overlap and there's not a lot of like cross-referencing of what's happening and that's because nothing is happening in one chronology anymore there's no one timeline for television right and i'm worried about that for stranger things we've we've had conversations in our office but like so should we do something Mm -hmm. about the entire season as soon as any one person has finished it Mm -hmm. should we just write about it and now in retrospect i'm like well what if we had done eight days of stranger things one a day but most people, I think, are going to start watching it, if not tonight, tonight, tomorrow night, and they'll probably be done by Sunday if they are really into it. Right, and we're not going to be even covering it that way. No, but I, I think that your melancholy about Good Place is this idea that there is no longer the feeling that we collectively go home and watch television tonight, mm-hmm. and that the next day we talk about it. And I think that that is, you know, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but I hope that more people are seeing more kinds of stories out there that's that's true and that are getting to experience it and that's happening and it will exist forever and that's basically netflix and amazon strategy which is we're just going to make as much stuff as humanly possible and win this arms race of content just build up the biggest and army. i'm sure this anxiety that we have is but, not something that 99 percent of television watchers feel absolutely i do think anecdotally it is something that television creators are beginning to feel. sure i had a conversation with a, a tv creator who makes a, a, a really good show that we watch and talk about sometimes and he said that he's feeling disillusioned with television because it feels um, uh, temporary yeah. in a way that it suddenly, you know, it did for years. It was sort of disposable, right? Like uh, Robert Guillaume, great actor, passed away this week. How many people have fired up Benson, you know what I mean? Or or, or Soap and gone back to watch those older shows. Uh, yeah. Not that they don't stand or up. Or Sports but, Night. I mean, like, but there's the idea that TV was more um, temporary. And then recently, there was this idea that this was the new canon. This was our primary medium for watching right. things. Right, 70s American cinema reborn. Is, ha- is happening now. Accessible to everyone. But yeah. now this feeling that this stuff just kind of exists and you either watch it or you don't. Um, whereas, you know, some movies can still get people out on the first day or, you know, the first week. Do Maybe you think the that that's because we're not thinking... I mean, we're getting kind of off track here, but do you think that part of that has to do with the shows that are prominent? Like, do you think we don't talk enough about ideas or thematic stuff and we're more concerned with un- of, uh, with unpacking things or 
plotting I, out where things are going. I, don't I, know. I think a lot of it is ultimately it's just timeline. It's like Thrones rules because Thrones happens like Super Bowl Sunday, ten Sundays, eight Sundays in a row, or whatever. Six Sundays, six, four, whatever it is. Happening. But something like Mindhunter. Which I am now going around to the office in our office, being like, "Are you? Have you finished Mindhunter? Have you finished Mindhunter? Have you? It's yeah, and but it's it's people are like, I, I want to, I want to, I'm trying, you know. I don't. When in the hell are people supposed to re- watch ten hours of television? No, I, I mean that's the whole thing. Yeah, that I think people are, are are really struggling with, and I and I do think that I, you tell me if I'm being flat if I'm flattering myself as a former you know cultural critic or tastemaker, whatever I was doing, but. There, there was something that felt particularly supercharged about TV in the last decade. Because there was five shows. Not just because there were five shows that a lot of people were watching, but because they felt stitched into our cultural fabric on a real-time level. Meaning, we felt that we were having a dialogue not just with the show, but the show was having a dialogue with the culture that, as we were experiencing it, and it felt relevant to our time somehow. And often that was just a matter of happenstance, but right? But isn't that I mean, also like what people used to say about classic rock, where it was like Pet Sounds spoke to Sgt. Yeah, Pepper but, and But so much Fert. of that was the Yon Wenners of the world, or later the Emily Nussbaums of the world writing the salient piece that linked it to something happening yeah, in culture and made that we decided think to call it. it the golden age, or we decided to call right, it the, and, you know, and, and so that break, land graph is decided to call it peak TV. These words it, just it, come into the you know. But whether it was through the design of the show or happenstance of the culture or through cultural arbiters, I think that Breaking Bad has a lot to say and reflects a lot about America in the first part of this century. You know, in a way that makes it even doubly compelling. It works as pure entertainment, sure, but it feels particularly compelling and. You know, I don't know, and and I guess what I'm asking, and I don't have an answer for this, is um, a show like The Deuce not resonating on that level because it is looking backwards and it's a period piece, or because no one's writing those pieces because not everyone is watching it at the same time? And is that the same with Good Place? Which, by the way, you know, a year ago when it premiered, my only criticism of it, which is such a, you know, this is a very silly tangential criticism to make, but... I felt like it really felt like a show made for Hillary Clinton's America. Yeah, I remember that. Because whereas Parks and Rec felt like a show we kind of need now about like civic do-gooderness, even sure. if it feels kind of out of place. But The Good Place was like, okay, let's take these debates about being a person and let's literally place it in the abstract. Let's put it in the afterlife so we can just have these, you know, not, not always smart in the case of Jason Mendoza, the character. But um, I'm but, having but, that problem with a lot of things beyond television right now. That's fair. Is feeling like... Anything pre last November is year zero. Mm-hmm. And it's not true because obviously these things didn't happen overnight. The things that led to where we are did not happen overnight. A Roy, lot of Roy Moore's been throwing heat for decades, yeah, man. So it's really naive to say like all of a sudden we went into the mm-hmm. to our own upside down. But it's hard for me. To, I mean, one of the things the deuce does not feel like resonant in the way that some other shows do and that I I think that I've actually had that issue with Show Me a Hero too Mm-hmm. I, I, not that it was, there was nothing wrong with it. The Everything about it was like a pure multivitam of good drama. Yeah. But I was like, this feels like it's happening in like the 1800s. Well, you know. It, and it's not. It's like everything that's happening with housing and Show Me a Hero is like coming to pass m- now. Maybe this is why Stranger Things is is good and will continue to be successful because it is purely, it is escapism, you know, and intentionally right. designed as such. And I, I was talking to a friend who writes for TV um, about the deuce and she was basically saying that she just can't hang with Maggie Gyllenhaal's character arc because at this particular moment in time and literally this this week or these last few weeks to see a character whose arc in the first part of the season is to be brutalized. Now, everyone knew that going into it. This is what the show is about. Maggie mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal collaborated with David Simon and George Pelicanos and Megan Abbott and they were aware of what was being shown and there was great delicacy and care and yeah. consideration given to the plight of her character Candy slash Eileen who was a sex worker and what was what was what was uh, construed by the show, and what she showed emotionally and physically, but this is the world that the show is putting, putting being put out into, and I don't blame anyone for being like I just I can't full stop. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to consider the things that um, will go in the in the content vault and in the time capsule and exist have have after lives, future lives, um, or the things that basically just can't can't hang because of the moment. And I know there are many people who would prefer, even people who listen to a podcast about TV, who prefer that we adopt a, kind of a new critical, yeah. the text is the text. Sure. But th- especially... That's not what made the tele- television conversation interesting in the first place. So. I agree. And also, as we move into this purely bespoke 
TV culture where yeah. everything is on demand, everything is by design. We can we can decide when and how and why we watch stuff. It's it you can no longer you, you can't you can't unstitch it. Shouts to Phantom Thread. Shouts to Reynolds Woodcock from the larger culture. We are not all gathering at eight p.m. on a Thursday to watch the Cosby Show to escape for thirty minutes. And by the way, not an escape as it turns out. You've got mail. Andy, we do want to get to a couple of listener questions before we go. Chase Gibson wants to know what show has the belt. God, I think it's between Deuce and Mindhunter, personally. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, think, I mean, it, the Netflix has had like actually a, quite a nice run, but I don't know where to put them on the belt. What about Red Oak season three? You're not feeling it? <laughs> I haven't, I haven't no, checked I out no, season I, two yet. It, 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 I, I think it's right. I think that we would. Um, I would love to give it to the Deuce, but I don't know about its cultural footprint, and it was a relatively short season. I think in terms of us and the people we're talking to around the office in the studio, Mindhunter has it. Yeah. But it sort of seems silly to give it out the day before Stranger Things 2 comes to where everything is primed for it to grab the belt. Because remember, the belt is partly, mostly a completely arbitrary yes, award. But it's about having like the capturing the conversation as much as anything else. Because it's kind of a nostalgic thing for us. Like we want a show to grab that conversation. The Disgraceland podcast wants to know between Deuce and Mindhunter, which has the greatest chance of having a long run and becoming peak TV a la Mad Men and Breaking Bad? It's a great question. I think they both have a shot. I would say the Deuce has a better shot of being that kind of television show. I could see Mindhunter slipping more into famous serial killer mm-hmm. of the season. Mm-hmm. Fincher does one episode or none. Mm-hmm. So for as much as I adore that show, uh, the means of production over there suggest, hey, you know, we'll we'll do Manson, we'll yep. do Bert, like we'll just go through these guys. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Mindhunter changes over the years. The Deuce as Pelicanos has kind of laid out to us, has a kind of grander scope than than that. Although, like you said, I don't know what people's appetite for that scope is going to be. Grander scope, but but in some ways limited ambition because and my answer to this question is neither. Okay. Hard neither. No way. Because the deuce, as exceptional as I think it is, is by design a more modest project in terms of size. It's eight episodes this season. I th- from what he told us, and you know, it hasn't been renewed for a third season, of course. Sure. We don't know if they have a plan for a fourth season, but the way he spoke about it with us suggested that it was only ever conceived of as a three-season, 24-episode um, project, Yeah, which I think means it... I think that's smart. I think it's going to be amazing. But the shows that he's mentioning are the ones that we lived with and evolved with and grew. And speaking of evolution and growth, Mindhunter, love it, but I don't see the runway. You know, It is specifically about the way people think about things and perception of things and the development of an entire pathology, yeah. right? And as we learned from when we talked to Jonathan Groff this week, the character that his, the man who his character is loosely based on, I mean, had basically did this, established this kind of criminal science and kind of lost his mind from yes. it a little bit, had a breakdown. Right. I, I, I don't know, the shows that he's talking about, these have either redemption arcs or more narrative planks, narrative hooks for us to grab onto. These seem more like very, very high-quality projects, and I would differentiate the two. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Next Monday, Stranger Things' first three episodes, The Deuce Talk with Megan Abbott. The finale is on Sunday. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Great job, Baranski. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos. Andy and I love Sonos. It's changed the way we listen to music. We've just pulse-pounding sound throughout our apartments. Or guess what, man? Sometimes it's only in one room, and we turn the volume off in other rooms. Because Sonos lets you control the way your house sounds. Whether you're using curated or on-demand, free or subscription-based, Sonos has you covered with access to a growing list of music services in any room or every room all at once. And for now, for a limited time, Sonos is offering listeners of the watch 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. Just use the promo code WATCH10, that's W-A-T-C-H-1-0, all capital letters, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by LinkedIn. The best place to find great talent for your hiring needs is at LinkedIn. Businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Go to LinkedIn.com slash The Watch for a $50 credit towards your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash The Watch. Terms and conditions apply.